All right, jump to page two. So we are, we've spent a good long time so far in John 3. Again, it is a very popular, very important, very significant section of the scriptures. It is widely cited. John 3.16 in particular is very, very commonly cited. And at the same time, these matters seem to be widely misunderstood. Even though amongst the Reformed it is widely understood that John 3 is talking about regeneration, which is sovereignly given out by the grace of God, that God causes men to be given the gift of faith. That is true, but that is not all that is communicated here. And so there is a lot in this text to be dealt with. And furthermore, because there are many errors that go around about what faith is and about how salvation works and also about the relationship of the other subjects here to salvation, we are spending significant time on it. Now, the chapter, remember, begins with a basic assumption here where Nicodemus says, he calls Jesus a rabbi, he calls him a teacher come from God, which means a prophet, and he does so with the assertion that the signs that Jesus does are the authoritative basis for which he is to be believed. And Jesus corrects him. Jesus corrects him because of the fact that that is not the test that the scriptures give. Nicodemus has Deuteronomy. And so, when you read Deuteronomy 18, verses 17 to 22, look at the bottom of page 2, what does it say? It says, And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now that's a prophecy given to Moses about Christ. But notice this, verse 19, And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Okay, So there's, there's guilt here for not believing the testimony of Christ. And notice John the Baptist testifies at the end of John 3 that people aren't going to believe Christ. But that's what happens. Even the church, the, the church of the time, the old covenant church, rejected Christ. There are individuals, of course, that were brought to believe before Christ died. But in general, that's the response. Verse 20, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So the death penalty is given to false prophets. But the test that's given is the idea that speaking a word in the name of God that's presumptuous, saying giving revelation that he has not given. That is false prophecy. And then, speaking in the name of another god is false prophecy. So, the question of these things being in the name of another god, that would contradict past revelation, or extra information that's not what God has revealed, that is a basis for condemnation. Verse 21, And if you say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So there's one of the tests. If a prediction is given, then that has to be used to judge the prophet. And if it is not fulfilled, then it is a false prophet. And if he speaks a word as though it's from another god, he's contradicting the assertion of the Bible that there is one god. And so he is speaking for a false god. He is a false prophet. So contradicting past revelation and giving predictions that are false. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 5, is another text that is important for being able to test prophets. If there arises among you, this is on page 3, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, And he gives you a sign or a wonder. Okay, so notice this. A prophet, that's a person who's bringing words. Their mouthpiece is the literal meaning of the Hebrew word. And a dreamer of dreams. So we have dreams or visions. And there's the words. Okay, and that's, those are both things. So if anybody claims to you that they received some vision or a dream that they think was from God, guess what they're claiming? They are claiming special revelation. These things are tied together over and over again. There are no prophets now. This is plain in other places of Scripture. I don't have time to prove that today. I've preached on that many other times. 
But we need to know if somebody claims to receive a vision or a dream and they want to say that it's from God, Jesus told me in this dream or whatever, that is a claim of revelation. It is a claim of prophetic work. So, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and he gives you a sign or a wonder, we might replace that in modern with the word miracle, okay? The idea of a sign or a wonder. This is the common language that's used to talk about what what Moses did in Egypt, you find that language over and over again. It's a pattern of words, and it's pointing to miracles. So it doesn't mean supernatural in general. There's lots of supernatural stuff that goes on. There's lots of supernatural stuff that's happening now. There are angels and demons. There is you know, God answers prayer. He regenerates people. He gives Holy Spirit gifts to do things. He gives us victories that are beyond the ordinary means that we would expect to get. So there are all sorts of supernatural work What's a miracle as opposed to just something that's supernatural? Supernatural is generally the work of God that is above or outside of the nature of things. But when we talk about a miracle or a sign and a wonder, we're talking about a thing to be looked at, a thing to behold, a symbol, a wondrous drawer of attention that draws attention to the message and to the messenger. Either or, you'll find texts that that point to either. And so the idea of a sign or wonder is a supernatural work that draws attention to the sign, or sorry, to, to the message or to the messenger. So, here we have this idea of signs or wonders being performed by prophets. Is that a sufficient proof? Well, verse 2, and the sign of the wonder comes to pass. Okay, so it, somebody gives a sign, they give a wonder, they give a prediction. Is that sufficient to prove that there's an authoritative prophet? The answer is no. The sign of the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods. Right. So, he could deliver a false prophecy a commandment, let's go after other gods, with a sign or wonder that comes to pass. Is that sufficient? No. What do you judge the signs or wonders by? Even if the positive test of a sign or wonder comes, the message must be judged for coherence with past revelation. If he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so you shall put away the evil from your midst. And so we have a commandment to put out, which is a commandment of excommunication, and there's also a civil penalty associated with that. But we have the test. How do we know in either court, the church court or the civil court, if a man is a false prophet, if he contradicts past revelation, and another one, if what he predicts does not come to pass. Those are the positive, those are the tests that we look for. Either one of them would show that the man is a false prophet. So, he must claim to speak in the name of the true God, have a testimony of being a prophet of the true God. It must not contradict past revelation, and he must not give false predictions. Signs are optional. I'm emphasizing this. I've told you this like four times now. Emphasize it every time, restating it in other ways, giving this to you. Why? Because this is the foundational thing. How do you know? Has God said? If you cannot determine the difference between true revelation and false revelation, if you are not able to see if something fits with what has already been revealed, then you have no way of determining truth from error. Page 3, point 2. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So, remember we have laid out here attributes of truth, and we've talked about how the visible signs are not sufficient talked about that at length. Go to page 4. Jesus answered and said to him, this is verse 3, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, so unless you're given spiritual life, then you will not be able to differentiate between the true church and the false church. You won't be able to see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is typically used to refer to the visible church. You'll not be able to differentiate between true prophets and false prophets. That's the context. We're talking about the acceptance of a true prophet, Jesus. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Okay, so we talked about the error of literalism, where you fail to understand figures of speech and representations that are made clear in the context. So that's the error that's being made here by Nicodemus. Remember, born of the water is talking about the effect of cleansing. So this is born of the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. And born of the Spirit is born of the origination of the power coming from the Holy Spirit. I argued this in detail in the last two sermons. And so I think if you're not convinced, come talk to me about it or raise an objection. And also, if you haven't heard those, check that out. It was not fitting for a man to fill a church office and fail to understand the doctrines of grace, even at this early point in redemptive history. Christ is saying back then, during his ministry, long before the Synod of Dort, he is saying back then, it was not fitting for a man to be a teacher of Israel and to not understand the doctrines of grace. Verse 11, Most assuredly I say to you, we speak that what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Okay, so testifying is about spreading knowledge. And what Jesus is saying here is if you don't get the more basic things, if you don't get the more familiar things, if you don't get the easier to see things, how will you see the less basic, the less familiar, the harder to see? If you don't get the earthly, how will you get the heavenly? You don't receive it. You don't receive the testimony. And this not receiving of testimony, this not receiving of witness, if it is not had on the more basic things, there's no way to make progress. So think about this. In the work of the church, in the work of the church, there are more foundational doctrines and there are less foundational doctrines. And everybody wants to go do all the practical stuff. They want to jump in. I have to have this conversation a lot, okay, this, this conversation. People want to do stuff. They're like, you know, I think what you're doing is pretty good. Don't really get it all. Don't agree about everything. But I'd like to be able to help with the ministerial working. I'd like to be able to participate in this stuff. It's like, two cannot walk together unless they are agreed. Unless you work through the stuff where you disagree, unless you work through the more basic things, you will start to work at odds. And the effort to work together requires agreement on operating principles. Operating principles come from agreeing about a goal. A goal comes from agreeing about doctrine. And so there is a need to receive witness about more basic things to be able to move on to less basic things, to accept the things that are fitting for children and young men before seeking to be fathers. Now, heavenly things, the earthly things are the things about the current order on earth, where he talks about basically original sin and the problem of not being able to save ourselves. And the heavenly things are the power of the Holy Spirit coming down, the invasion of heaven into the earth to be able to change men. Okay, so now verse 13, go to page 5. This is all, we're going this fast because I've, I've been preaching on this for a bit. So uh, so for this, any of you this is new, sorry for the flyover, but we've got to keep making progress. Verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven. That is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. So in other words, Jesus came from heaven to bear witness about heavenly things. Right? He's seen it. He's able to bear witness about it. And this is not talking about, as is sometimes said in this text and other texts, some people try to take things about Christ descending and ascending and make it about him going to hell and coming up. This one's an obvious one where he's coming from heaven down to earth. And that's used to interpret other passages. This one is very clear. Verse 14 and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This being lifted up is not simply limited to him being lifted up on the cross. That is often the focal point of preaching on this text. Yes, Christ is lifted up on the cross. But the context, when you read the other verses around it, the lifting up is for him to be on display. And the being lifted up to be on display is in order that the message of Christ might be heard or seen 
so that people might be saved. Now, yes, Christ's death on the cross is necessary to pay for sin. Absolutely, that's here. And at the same time, what the text is focused on when we look at the following verses is the idea of people seeing Christ and therefore being able to believe. And so it's about him being made a public person, being put on display. So, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, verse 15, that whoever believes in him should not be put, sorry, should not perish, but have eternal life. And the word eternal there is aeonon, and so that just means everlasting. It's the same word that's translated everlasting later on. Okay, so I'm just going to read it as everlasting because that helps to remove confusion. Remember, the word eternal has two meanings, and you should really get these clearly in your mind and know the difference. The first meaning of eternal is without beginning and without end. Eternal things in that sense are outside of time. Everlasting is another meaning for the word eternal. The word eternal can mean everlasting, which means it doesn't end. But it would have a beginning, right? When, you, when you're given this everlasting life, you, didn't, you weren't conceived believing. You were given it at a particular point in time. You were given faith at a particular point in time. And so it's not that you had it eternally. It's that you received it, and it goes on forever. And so that's the meaning here. The better translation is everlasting. So I like to preserve the use of the word eternal to talk about God's eternality, his without beginningness, his outside of timeness, his changelessness, right? When we talk about eternality, it's helpful to be able to differentiate eternality from everlasting. So, in other words, the text says Christ has to be lifted up in the way that the serpent that Moses had was lifted up. And we talked about the serpent last time, too. I'll do a reminder on that, but this is text. Do you see how dense this text is? I mean, cause like we, we've spent like three weeks already preaching through this. So now I'm trying to summarize it. And even having heard those, like the processing of all of this information is something that is laborious. But it's important. It's an important text, and it's valuable to do, and to understand what it actually means. So Moses lifts up the serpent, and that story... Remember, the story is the Israelites are in the desert. They get bit by venomous serpents, and they're going to die. Some of them are dying. More of them are going to die. So what does God do to save them from the venomous serpents? He, he tells Moses to make a bronze serpent to be carried, to be lifted up. And if anybody is bitten by these serpents, they are to look at the bronze serpent. And by looking at the bronze serpent, God will then not by some power in the bronze snake, but by a supernatural work of God, he would heal them and cause the poison that's in them to be removed. So the analogy point here, right? Christ is like the serpent, the bronze serpent, in that we look to Christ and God will heal us of poison. What's the poison in the analogy? The poison in the analogy is indwelling sin and unbelief. The idea is that if we look to Christ, not only is there a forgiveness of sin, but there's also the removal of deadness and the progressive deadness. God will not only forgive our sins, but he also causes the old man, the presence of indwelling sin, to be weakened, removed, reduced. And he causes life to take its place. And so what we have is this analogy, and that points to regeneration. Okay? Regeneration is God causing us to go from dead to alive, from spiritually dead to alive. And so being snake bit is a term, it's a figure of speech that we use to say, here's a thing that even though it looks alive, it's basically dead. What a wonderful analogy to understand the condition of natural man. We look around at people and they look like they're alive because they're walking in the streets, but they are snake bit. They are dead inside. And unless they look to the bronze serpent, that venom will make it so that their deadness is only made more plain. And so by looking to the serpent, there's a removal 
of that poison, of that death, of that dying. Now, the point there is not that you have to believe and then you get regenerated. The point is that God is the one who gives faith. He's the one that regenerates, and he does it by giving faith. When he gives faith, that's regeneration. And so looking to Christ is the thing that is the life-giving thing. It is the life. And he explains that explicitly in John 17, 3. He says, this is everlasting life, to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Right? So the life is the faith. And so here there's this explanation of the removal of the poison as an analogy. And that poison is the unbelief. It's sin. The presence of the life is faith. And so what's the thing we're supposed to have faith in? What's the, the point of the bronze serpent analogy is not to give you an excruciatingly detailed analogy about the order of faith. He just explained that above. This analogy is to give a different point. What's the point? What's your faith in? There's some object of faith. There's a thing to look at. What's the thing you look at? Christ. Is it physically looking at Christ? No. Right? Stick with us. We're talking about literalism is a problem. This is not something physical. It's a spiritual analogy. The eyes are about what your mind is focusing on, and the serpent represents Christ. So you look to Christ in the mind. That's the object of faith. That's the thing to be believed in. So, that serpent story comes up. And we're told in verse 15 that all who believe in Christ shall not perish. Right? Why does the serpent get lifted up? So that the people of Israel will not perish. Why does Christ get lifted up? So that all who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now here's the other thing that I have to deal with. There's a Greek issue. Okay? When it says whoever believes, some people are very confused about what that means. They think whoever believes means anybody can believe. Let me give you a better translation. Here's the Greek. The Greek is, I've got it written right there. It's in brackets. Pas, ho, pistuon. Well, how would you translate that literally? Well, pas is all, and ho is the, and believing, or those who believe. Okay, so all the believing, all people believing. This isn't a anybody can believe statement. This is Christ came in order to save everyone who believes, everyone who will believe. And he's already explained the source of the belief. Okay, so this is a very clear and plain text. It's simply saying we have to look to Christ. Christ was sent and to be lifted up in order to save all of those who believe. That way they won't perish. Instead, they're going to have everlasting life. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's verse 16. So look at verse 16. Let's walk through it. For God so loved the world. The world there is cosmion. And so this is about the world order. This is about uh, not every single individual. We are talking about the nations as opposed to just the Jewish nation. It's the all of the nations could be a way you talk about it. The world order. God so loved the created order. In particular, there are people that he is choosing to save. But God so loved this created order that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Now again, that language, whoever believes, right? Sometimes you'll see it translated from the King James and people say, well, whosoever. And so the so adds something. I don't know. There's, there's this effort to read this as saying everybody can believe. Anybody can believe. So anybody can believe. Therefore, Jesus must have paid for everybody's sins. That is not what the text is saying. Again, the Greek is the same as above. It's simply all the believing. All those that believe. That's it. That's all it's saying. God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten Son, that all the believing in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, this idea of loving the world is about the idea of he's going to give faith to people throughout the world, he's going to fill the world with people who believe him, and this is going to result in the idea that the world is filled with the knowledge of God. We connect this to other texts, that becomes plain. But that's what's happening here. So the love of the world is about the goal of filling the glory, the earth with the glory of God. Now, the only begottenness of Christ. There are three ways that we talk about begottenness in the scripture when we talk about Jesus Christ. One is people talk about the virgin birth. That's not what's being referred to here. The other one could be the resurrection, right? We're told in Psalm 2, for example, that, that this idea of Christ being, res- being begotten there, the resurrection is a, uh, an event that's referred to as begottenness. The begottenness here is talking about Christ has a special role. He is God, and his role is different from God the Father, and his, different, his role is different from God the Holy Spirit. What is his role? Well, God the Father elects those to redeem, God the Son accomplishes the redemption of the elect. And God the Holy Spirit applies the redemption of the elect. That application is explained above. The new birth is the application. God gives faith and applies the work of Christ through the gift of faith. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That application is an application of something that has been accomplished by Christ. When he dies on the cross, he accomplishes redemption. So there is a distinction of roles. The begottenness of the Son is a way of referring to his distinctive role. Does God the Son obey God the Father because he's inferior in essence? Is it like God the Father is more godlike and God the Son is less godlike and therefore God the Son obeys God the Father? No. God the Son obeys even though He's equal in divinity because of agreement, a covenant, a distinction of roles that has been agreed to. And so when we talk about the begottenness of the Son, the eternal begottenness of the Son, we are talking about His distinctive role as the second person of the Trinity. His job. What He's agreed to do. Which is to come to die. To pay for the sins of Not just the elect Jews, but the elect Gentiles too. Those throughout the world that the Father has chosen. Verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now, that word might be, okay, people will make much of that as well. I mean, it's unbelievable, the like trickery and nonsense that people go through to try to make this text into a anybody can believe and Jesus died to make salvation possible. If Jesus died to make salvation possible but didn't accomplish it, none of us are saved. Because any part left to us we would fail at. God saves us. The language here is not that the world might maybe be saved. The Greek is literally just that through him saved In other words, he is the one who saves. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through Christ would be saved. Is a better translation. Would be saved. Jesus makes it so that all believers are saved. The Holy Spirit gives faith to make believers out of unbelievers. Now, this idea that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, remember, the background is the what's called the earthly things. If you don't believe the earthly things, how will you believe me when I teach you heavenly things? The earthly background already was, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. We have no way to save ourselves. We cannot generate faith out of our own hearts. We cannot save ourselves. So he's re-emphasizing this. And then, the idea is, Christ could have simply 
left everybody alone that had been condemned. He came into the world not to condemn the world, because that was already the condition. But he came into the world in order to save. So the people who are chosen by God are saved by Christ coming into the world. Now, page 6, I've got for you the Numbers text. It's the original story. We looked at that before. Also, the Second Kings text, which I didn't have time to talk about last time. And I don't have time to read it today. But what I want to point out for you here is what we see is in a time of Reformation, what happened was there was a use of this bronze serpent that was ordered to be made by God, made by Moses at the commandment of God, and then it was used for a lawful purpose to look to it so that people would be saved from poison. And what happened in history, by the time of 2 Kings 18, is you have people starting to give this thing a name, Nehushtan, for, as a false god, and to worship it. And so they start to worship this bronze serpent which was given for them. And so what you find is the appropriate response of a godly king, which is to destroy it. The appropriate response of a godly king to idols is to destroy them. And so what we find is even things that are given by the institution of God, when they are abused, it is appropriate to take them away for a period of time in order to deal with the corruption that has come. And so we see that with Hezekiah. So we go to page 7. Page 7, verse 18. He who believes in him, Christ, is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Okay, so, so notice this. Condemnation already exists. Jesus didn't come into the world in order to generate condemnation. Rather, condemnation is already a precursor because of the condition of man. God predestined that too. I'm not trying to like relieve God of that plan. That's what happened. But Christ could have not been sent. Right? God could have just said, I'm going to make people. I'm going to have them fall. I'm going to condemn them for it. Totally just. Nothing wrong here. No injustice. No evil done. God, just, righteous, good. That's it. But that's not what he did. Why did he not do that? Because he's merciful and he wanted to show his mercy. So he sends his only begotten son to go and pay for sin to make his mercy displayed. That our salvation is a byproduct of the desire of God to glorify himself in the earth. To make his glory known. To show his greatness. We receive of the overflow of the greatness of God. But at the same time, it's a sin to reject the truth that God has revealed. So there is a accountability, a responsibility for not believing what has been revealed. Verse 19, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Now, we spent a lot of time in chapter 1 talking about the ways in which light is used in the book of John. And we talked about how the logos is manifest in various ways. So all of the weight of all of that stuff, all of those weeks of preaching about logos, I want you to take all of that and import it right there into that word. So what you've got is, here's what the condemnation is. That the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Okay, so this is talking about a psychological list of causation. Okay, why is it that they love darkness rather than light? Well, because their deeds are evil. So they want to hide their sin. They want to avoid accountability. And so there's a desire to avoid light because of past sin. 
it's painful to have to admit you've failed in lots and lots of ways. So people don't like the light of God's word. They do not like the preaching of the law. They do not like the preaching of the gospel because both of them tell them that they're bad. So the natural order would be if the Holy Spirit didn't regenerate anybody, didn't cause people to be born again, the only effect of the preaching of the word, the only effect of light going into the darkness would be people scattering, people killing the light bearers, or people trying to deny it. And these activities of cover-up, self-justification, blame-shifting, denial, killing the light bearers, those activities would be the only types of responses you would see. But because of the sovereign grace of God, because of his power to convert people, what we find is the light goes out and God converts people and causes them to rally around the light. He causes other people to fight and to scatter and to do all that. But in this era, in the era since the ascension of Christ, since Pentecost, since the Holy Spirit's power being given to the church, that we might powerfully preach the word. The result is that we expect that the gathering power will cause a greater effect than the scattering power. The scattering power is real. It's useful. We take the word. We make people retreat. It's funny how the wicked become cowards when they have to plainly look at themselves and they worry that other people can see the spinach in their teeth too. And so the cowardice that comes on is amazing. But there's also the converting effect that the word has. The verse 20. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So this is why people do not want to deal with regular church membership, having to deal with church discipline, having to deal with preaching that's clear about the law, having to deal with accountability, having to have lives looked into. Hospitality is a dangerous thing because people will see into your home. Right? Hospitality is an act of humility. I encourage you all to have hospitality because you're exposing how messed up you are when people come and eat in your home. And what that does is it pushes you to fix it. Pushes you to fix it. The things that bring transparency, the things that bring light, the things that bring attention to your behavior and who you are and what you are and what you're doing. Verse 21, He who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Okay, so look at point 33. Okay. Jesus is righteous, he comes to the light. The righteous angels are righteous, they come to the light. Adam, before the fall, he was righteous and he was in the light and he walked around with God and there was nothing he was shamed of until the fall. To some extent, converted men, because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and the work of the Spirit in us, we can come into the light. But there is still so much evil in us. And so... We, we make advances and we have pain and we retreat back and we hide. And then we get strength again and encouragement and officers come to us and say, no, we have to keep charging. And so they come along and they help to bring you along and you keep moving forward and you go, oh, i got to hide again. Right? This, this, this halting, retreating, inconsistent, advancing, retreating, that is what happens with regenerate men. But we have to come into the light. We have to increasingly have transparency, increasingly have the law expose our sin, to look into the mirror of God's word and see it ourselves, to teach it to our wives that they can be a conscience to us, to teach it to our children that they can be a conscience to us. As you do these things, as you order your life in these ways, the result is that you have this increasing presence of light and there are no shadows to hide in. And so it pushes you, it goads you, it moves you along, it makes you advance. And so the appropriate response of a Christian to that pain is to remove the source of the pain, to re remove the poison, to, to see life replace death, to see truth replace falsehood in the mind. And the fruit of that is the peaceable fruit of righteousness, the, the, the fruits that come forth in good works. And so... As we 
think about this, we have to, again, be very clear to distinguish the work that God does in us versus how we are counted right before God. When you emphasize obedience to the law, there's a big danger that people will think, okay, I've got to try real hard so that God will accept me. And if you emphasize the gospel and never preach the law, the danger is that people will think, great, I'm saved from sin so that I can sin all that I please. And so what needs to be understood is we are saved from sin by the gospel that we might, as lawbreakers, now begin to more and more be law keepers because that's the good life. Okay, we're saved from lawbreaking by the gospel so that we can more and more become law keepers. We're not saved by law keeping. We're saved by Christ's law keeping. We're not saved by our law keeping. But we're saved to law keeping. So, at the bottom of page 7, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardons all their sins. A pardon. A pardoning. Pardoning is a legal external act. Okay, Think about this. If a legitimate president were to be in office and were to issue a pardon for somebody, the effect would be legal. It would not be to say that this crime never happened. It would not be to say that we're changing the metaphysical order of things so that the crime has been erased from history. It's to say you're counted under law as though you had not committed this crime. That is a pardon. And so the guilt of it and the punishment of it are removed. Justification is about pardon from sin. And it's also about being accepted as righteous, accounted as righteous in the sight of God. So that's also legal. That's external. It doesn't mean internally you're perfectly righteous, but this covering. And it's not, you're not counted as righteous because of the work of the Spirit in you as though that's good enough. Okay? It's not the Holy Spirit's goodness in you that makes it so you're counted as good enough. And it's not the good works done by you that make it so you're counted as good enough, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ. Okay, now, we see the words perfect obedience. And with perfect, we normally hear perfect and we're just like, oh, so it's really good. It's nice. It's like fantastic. It's amazing. Okay, here, the word perfect here is a technical and important sense that you need to get out of it. It means full. It means complete. The idea is he didn't just behave righteously. He behaved righteously by fulfilling the whole law. There's a list of obediences. He did all of the obediences. It is a perfect or full or complete obedience. And it's a full satisfaction of Christ. So he fulfills all of the list of the requirements. And the satisfaction, it's a full satisfaction. So you have a credit card. You can't pay the credit card. You owe a zillion, bazillion, jillion dollars. It's a real number. And... You owe all this money, and the interest payments alone are a gajillion dollars. And so you can't afford that either. And so because you can't afford the payment, and you can't afford to pay it down, you know all there is is you can't pay it at all. So the only thing you can do is negotiate satisfaction through a partial payment. But the credit card company is God, and he doesn't take partial payment. And so all you'd have is this increasing debt. So the Lord Jesus Christ pays in full. He pays everything you owed, all the interest, all the principal, and any of the fees. Yes, even the over-withdrawal fees. All of it. He pays all of it in full, complete. It's a full satisfaction. That is what is imputed to you. That's what's credited to you. That's what's accounted to you. That's what gets transferred into your account. It's not a pouring in of stuff to make you better inwardly. It's a crediting, legal accounting thing. And that's received by faith alone. Okay, so that's justification. 
So you got page eight. Okay, page eight. Decided to send you all back to homeschool. And so I've got a list for you there of the formal causes, and I didn't give you the answer. The formal cause, the effectual cause, the instrumental cause, the meritorious cause, and the ultimate cause of salvation. You've heard this from me enough that you should be able to fill that in. And if you can't fill it in, if you can't fill it in, okay, you should probably ask somebody about it. Just cheat. Just get somebody else to fill it out for you, and then be like, okay, good. I've got the answers. And then later on, come up to me and be like, I've got all the answers. Know them all. So figure it out. Look into it. Now, question 71, how is justification an act of God's free grace? Although Christ, by his obedience and death, did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction. There's that, it's proper, it's, it's right, it's a fitting type of satisfaction. It's real, right? Rome likes to say our view of what Christ did is a legal fiction. Well, it's legal, and it's real. If you don't think law is real, start breaking it in violent ways and see what happens to you. It, if you don't think law is real, don't pay your bills and see what happens to you. Right? So law is real. Law is real. And Christ made a proper satisfaction for our sins. He made a real satisfaction for our sins, and it was full. To God's justice, in behalf of them that are justified. So he did it for you, in your place, in your stead, with power of attorney. Okay, That's what he did. He acted as your representative. Yet, inasmuch as God accepts the satisfaction from a surety, it's a payment, which he might have demanded of them, right? he, he had a right to demand that you make the payment, and did provide this surety, and God sent him. So, right, the credit card company was actually like, here's what we're going to do. We like this guy. He's a good customer. Actually, he's a terrible customer. He's the worst. But, because we like him, what we're going to do is we're going to send somebody from the company to pay for his debt. Okay? God the Father sent Christ to pay the debt to himself. God had a right to demand payment from us. He provides this surety, this payment, his only son. He imputes the righteousness of Christ to the elect, to those who believe. And he requires nothing of them for their justification, except for faith. He requires faith. And you go, oh, is that what I do? Is that the part I add? Is that the... No, that's a gift also. And we just read that in John 3, right? Their justification is to them a free grace. So, what is justifying faith? Okay, you got this list here. You got these words, and it talks about being convinced of some things, assenting to certain things, receiving certain things, resting upon things. These are all ways of saying you have to believe certain things. You have to assent to them. You have not only assent to this, but also that. Okay, you can't just assent to the promise of the gospel. Like some people are like, you know, if you just believe that God forgives sins, you're fine. No. That is not the gospel. That, that's the promise. That's like the, the benefit we get. But that's not enough. You have to believe that you are forgiven not just because God's super nice. You have to believe that you are forgiven because Jesus Christ paid for your sin and made full satisfaction and provides you with righteousness as a covering. It's not just believing the promise of the benefit, it's also believing the means. It's not just believing the means, it's also believing what the problem was. You have to be convinced that you're a sinner and that sin makes you miserable. If you think, I really like my sin, and I think it's super valuable and it's better than God, but you know, as an insurance policy, it'd be nice in case I'm wrong that I instead have the possibility of being saved in case... My sin is not going to make me happy. You have to understand that sin is evil, that what God commands is right, and what he forbids is wrong, and that you have to believe that you have a lie that you're believing about what is ultimately good, and that you need to be saved from that and from the misery of it, and that you're not able to save yourself, and no creature can save you either. Okay, there's a list of at least 12 propositions here that's saying need to be believed. And I would encourage you to walk through and see, do you understand those things? 
Now, the glorious thing about the larger catechism and the shorter catechism is that if you don't know what some of these things are, you could probably find a question that defines them. And if you feel like you're not sure about any of these things, these things in the 12 there, come and ask. Have dinner tonight. Ask about it. Justifying faith is a faith that believes all those things. It assents to each of those propositions, the ones that are represented by those key terms. And so question 73 on page 10. How does faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? Faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God not because of those other graces which do always accompany it. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, you know, if you just believe, but you don't have whatever, then it's not really saving faith. Okay, well, if you believe the gospel, if you believe the 12 things there, yes, it is saving faith, and the other stuff is going to come. The other thing doesn't make it real faith. Okay, so it's not because of the other graces which accompany faith. They always accompany, they always come. But they're distinct. And it's not any works that flow from it that make it saving faith. And it's not as though faith itself is the thing that God's like, yeah, that was good enough. You jumped over the bar. That was good enough. Believing, that was good. Well done. It's not that. It's not the faith that's counted as good enough. But only as faith is an instrument by which we receive which we receive and apply Christ and his righteousness. So in other words, faith is the instrumental cause, is one of your answers, by the way. Okay, you look for instrumental cause in the list of the five causes. Faith is the instrumental cause of justification. It connects you to what Christ did. It connects you to his righteousness. Faith applies Christ to you you see it as applying to you, and you see his righteousness as covering you. That occurs in faith. And so that is what faith does. Faith is not good enough to get the, the favor of God. It doesn't provide you with a merit by itself. It connects you to the merit of Christ. So there's a lot there. This text is rough for me. If I were better at life, I would do a... Like, I would just like pretend like I don't need to explain a lot of the things as I'm going over it. I would just do a better job at things. But because of my doctrinaire nature, I had to point out all those things for you. So you're welcome. Comments, questions, and objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.